In April 1990, after years of delays and a budget that had ballooned to $2.1 billion, the Hubble Space Telescope was launched into space. The Hubble project was a big deal for NASA. The launch had been delayed over four years after the 1986 Challenger disaster brought the US space program to a halt. Hubble was going to be the largest ever space telescope, and it was going to capture high-resolution images of deep space. Deep space that had never been seen before. The launch was successful, but then came the agonising two-month wait for the Hubble to send back its first images. And after all of this investment in time, money and engineering ingenuity, the images that came back to NASA were blurry. Very blurry. Barely better than images from ground-based telescopes, which didn't cost billions of dollars. The issue was a tiny error in the shape of the 2.4 metre mirror. The mirror had been polished to the wrong shape. It was too flat on the outer perimeter by 2,200 nanometers, or about 1 500th of a millimetre. So NASA planned a mission to go fix Hubble. The seven astronauts tasked with the missions spent months training with around a hundred specialised tools. They ran through seven mission simulations, all before taking the dangerous journey up to the telescope, and then spending hours out on spacewalks to fix it. One of the challenges of being an astronaut is you're basically wearing, effectively, gloves. And then you're wearing ski gloves over the top, and then when you're wearing boxing gloves over the top. You're suspended several hundred miles above the Earth's surface, you're probably reasonably hungry, you're almost certainly tired, you're wearing the equivalent of a giant adult nappy. You're outside working for a very long period of time in a variety of temperatures, so your, your spacesuit is going to do its best to basically provide you with a comfortable environment. It's not that comfortable. And you're having to do effectively fundamentally complex tasks with very limited maneuverability. Mike Curtis-Rouse is Head of Access to Space for our episode partner. That's the UK's satellite applications catapult. And also recognising that when you drop, and it's usually a when, you drop that span or you drop that bolt, potentially the nearest replacement is 250 miles away. Unfortunately, that's 250 miles straight down in California or in Europe or something. So it's a fairly high-pressure, challenging environment. Ultimately, the mission was a success. Hubble started sending back clear images, and over the last 30 years, it has massively expanded our knowledge of the universe. But as Mike explains, sending astronauts up to space for repairs is dangerous, it's expensive, and it's not always an option. As we push further out into space with ever more ambitious projects, such as the new James Webb Space Telescope, the space industry does not want to rely on human interventions. Instead, it's doing everything it can to prepare for a future where robot servicing and manufacturing in space is a reality. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Jane Sophia. In this episode, we've partnered once again with the Satellite Applications Catapult to talk about the future of the space sector. 
Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. Back in April 2020, we made an award-winning episode with them about how satellites can be used to save structures down on Earth. Episode 55. This time, we're exploring the use of new technologies to enable future space exploration, including gaining an understanding of where manufacturing in the space environment could benefit life down here on Earth. But first, a bit of background. The Satellite Applications Catapult is part of a network of organisations that was set up to transform the UK's innovation capabilities in nine strategic sectors. One of which is satellite applications, and it is focused on accelerating growth in the UK space sector by commercialising research and development in both industry and academia. We're here to provide resilience, we're here to provide innovation, we're here to provide disruption. And what that means basically is ensuring that new technology, new capabilities, new products and services are pulled through universities and from organisations doing basic innovation and accelerating that capability to a far higher level. So turning it from an idea, um, something which might operate in the laboratory, something which you might test in, in, a, in a lab or a workshop, and turning that into a physical product or capability. The Satellite Applications Catapult wants to help make the UK a leader in the commercial space industry. And since 1950, right up to about 1990, the UK had been doing significant activities in terms of building launch vehicle capability, building satellites, deploying what we call ground segment, the ability to to communicate between things which go into space and then relaying the information further. We then went into a kind of hiatus, partially because the UK uh, in the 60s and 70s decided that it wasn't going to pursue a launch vehicle programme and would use other nations. Use the launch facilities of other nations to send any UK satellites into space. But things are changing. In recent years, we've seen a real renaissance. We've seen uh, effectively UK industry and business grow, looking at new opportunities, new sectors, new capabilities. And some of those are concerning launch, how do you put things into space in the first place? And some of those are concerning effectively, what do we do in space? So what are we doing in the space environment? What are we using it for? What are we exploiting from a data perspective? What are we exploiting from a manufacturing perspective? So we're seeing a real growth now suddenly in a whole range of new capabilities. And and that goes from the launch pad to small satellites, to products and services in space. And there was certainly fairly nascent ambitions to go beyond that. And one of the nascent applications that Satellite Applications Catapult is most excited about is a commercialized space economy centered around in-orbit servicing and manufacturing. Hubble was the first one that really, really was proper servicing. And, it, and essentially, that, that's really what we're talking about, is taking a satellite that's malfunctioning and replacing components, upgrading components, and putting it back into, into service and extending its life to some extent. Jeremy Hadal is the robotics development lead at the Satellite Applications Catapult. He's been working in robotics for over 20 years and has seen in-orbit servicing technology come a long way since Hubble. The ISS, the International Space Station, that's very much being serviced regularly to keep it, to extend its life. So it's regularly refueled, it regularly has some of, its, some of the filters, the waste filters changed and the waste pods have changed over. And some of that's now being automated. Uh, and so the thing with Hubble is it, it was all manual. The, the, the Canada arm from the from the shuttle was used, to, but that was really used just to move things into position for the astronauts to actually do the servicing themselves. 
The Canadarm is a remote manipulation system, which is perhaps Canada's most famous space technological achievement. This was then upgraded for the ISS. What we're now seeing is that the next generation of arm that's on the International Space Station is able to change a lot of the modules and carry out the servicing themselves. And some of that's being done autonomously. There's, there's still humans in the loop, but a lot of the actual work is autonomous. The work is becoming remote and technical, rather than up close and physical. Jeremy understands the challenges that face the engineers that are making and updating the Canadarm, having seen firsthand how robotics have evolved. Well, my first experience of a, of a robot was at university. It was a very leaky hydraulic robot, and the, the key pieces of equipment that you were given to work with the robot were essentially a pair of Wellington boots. Just leaked hydraulic oil everywhere. When I first started properly working in robotics, we were on servo powered, servo controlled, microprocessors, floppy disks still were still the rage, black on green or green on black uh, control panels, which were horrible to work with. Um, and technology's moved on a lot. The, 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 the mechanics of the robot in terms of an industrial robot hasn't really changed. It's still a bunch of metal components joined together with some, some motors and gearboxes. Actually, most robots are like that, even in the service industry, they just take different forms. What's changed is you've gone from very bespoke microprocessors that were big, clunky, I don't know, seven, seven foot tall, five foot wide cabinets to being able to really program a robot off a laptop and, and even off a phone now. We've really moved on with the computing power. We've really moved on with what you can do with robots from a control cognitive point of view. As robots improve, in-orbit service and manufacture won't rely on humans, making it safer and cheaper. But getting things to space is still incredibly expensive. Launch costs can be tens of millions of dollars, with additional payload costs ranging from a couple thousand to tens of thousands of dollars per kilogram. The emergence of private companies going to space in the last decade has certainly driven costs down, but Mike thinks the real cost saving will come when we improve our in-orbit servicing abilities. If you take the same example of the taxi, if you worked on the basis that a taxi could do a thousand miles, and at the end of a thousand miles you had to throw the taxi away, uh, taxi journeys would be prohibitively expensive. In fact, there wouldn't be a business model for it. The reality is, is that that's actually what we do with spacecraft today. But after two years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, we do throw the spacecraft away because simply we can't refuel it, repair it, replace damage which may have happened from space debris or micrometeorite damage, radiation damage, atomic oxygen, and a whole variety of other factors. That means spacecraft become expensive because we have to design them for very long lifetimes. Or we design them to basically last a very short amount of time and then burn up. Neither, frankly, as we move into an age of sustainability is sustainable. So. If we want to extend the life of something, we need to maintain it, we need to inspect it, we need to repair it. Occasionally, we might need to remove things from it, or periodically, we might want to upgrade it as well. If spacecraft can be serviced and have their life extended, that can open the door to making in-space manufacturing economically viable. But astronauts on the International Space Station have already done some very small-scale in-orbit manufacturing. There's a classic example of uh, they needed a specific, specific tool on the, on the space station. 
didn't have it on the space station. It was a six month lead time to get a launch to get it to the space station, but they had a 3D printer on the space station. So they 3D printed one from a polymer and it worked. And it was you know, quite an important thing that they clicked. We are seeing a degree of manufacturing on the International Space Station and certainly on the Chinese Space Station as well. But most of this is very nascent, very early stage stuff. I mean, arguably, you could say the fact that they've got a bread machine and a cooking machine on the space station, that might be the most advanced manufacturing in space capability right now. The plans for in-space servicing and manufacturing go far beyond what's being done right now. There are two forms of in-space manufacturing. First is building stuff in space to use in space. In orbit, manufacturing use in space is where we're looking to build probably relatively large things. So if we were looking to build a space-based solar power station, so something which is basically a very large structure, potentially kilometers long, which has solar panels, which uh, basically absorb the sun's energy, converts that energy into electricity and then beams that energy to Earth. The second type is manufacturing things in space to then bring back to Earth. Whereas in orbit manufacturing for use on Earth is we're probably talking about things that we basically, we make in space, which we might want to use on Earth. So things we can't make on Earth because we don't have a microgravity or an incredibly clean environment. Space is ultimately a very clean environment. So that could include manufacturing replacement organs. That's certainly a long-term objective. In the shorter term, that could involve a variety of semiconductors, very strong alloys and very high efficiency fiber optic cables. Microgravity is one of the major advantages of space and has already shown benefits in certain manufacturing applications. In 2020, a 3D printer printed out living tissue cell by cell on the International Space Station. The team behind the technology hope that in the future they'll be manufacturing human organs in space. Printing organs on Earth has proved very difficult, as printed tissue collapses under the Earth's gravity, while in space, the layers of tissue hold in place, making complex structures like heart chambers possible to print. It's not hard to see the benefits of this. Currently, each year, only 10% of those waiting for a transplant receive one, and even then, there's a risk of the body rejecting a foreign organ. But by 3D printing an organ, you could use the cells of the person who needs it, and that would reduce the risk of rejection. Microgravity also provides advantages for many other areas of manufacturing. We're certainly looking at biomedical vaccines and the like. Anything that needs this kind of silicon crystal growth, so potentially computing IT, would be really beneficial. Experiments have shown silicon crystal growth in space can grow up to six cubic millimetres, compared to just 0.5 cubic millimetres on Earth. So, for example, cells um, or effectively um, crystals as part of a ceramic or part of a metal, they form in effectively a homogeneous, a like-for-like -like fashion. So if you can imagine perfect snowflakes forming, in the case of semiconductors, that's highly uh, advantageous. In the same way, if we want cells to grow for a replacement heart or a replacement liver or a replacement kidney or perhaps replacement ears, then we can allow the parts, the effectively organs, to grow in such a way that they grow in the same direction at the same speed. And that means we can basically build something far faster, far more effectively, and importantly, far more uniformly. The vacuum of space is also very useful for certain specific types of manufacturing. 
because it's effectively a vacuum, it means there's very few very little contamination there. So anything that needs to be manufactured in a sensitive environment where contamination will be a problem, so this certainly includes manufacturing organs and semiconductors, makes it a very attractive space. Space doesn't just provide good manufacturing conditions, it also has an abundance of resources. From moons to planets to asteroids, space is full of resource-rich places for us to explore. I think that economy, to be sustainable, would have to use resources that we find in space. I don't think we can rely on using up Earth resources, sending it to space, and kind of saying, yeah, we're going to have this great space economy, but it's completely reliant on depleting everything on Earth. That, that, that as, a, as a humanity thing, doesn't really work. Uh, you're going to have to use stuff that's in, in space. but. Alongside that, we have to learn lessons of what we've done on, on Earth and not repeat that mistake of overmining things. Space may provide many benefits to manufacturing, but one big downside is it's not a very hospitable environment for people. So it's likely robots will do most of the work, but even robots working in space face problems. If the robot stops in a car factory, you can just uh, make it safe, open, open the safety fence, go in, fix it and come back out again and start the process over again. You haven't got that ability in space. So the robots are going to have to be able to work pretty autonomously, and they're going to have to be able to solve lots of challenges. You either say, I'm really going to have to build a huge amount of autonomy into my robot system to make it super intelligent, and pretty much as intelligent and as clever and able to reason as well as a human being. That last bit is really hard, because a human can look at a problem and kind of work it out and apply some element of common sense to it. We haven't quite got there with robot with, with AI yet. So you can either do that, and, I, and there's lots of people doing that, but it, it's very theoretical. It's going to take time to prove that it actually works. Or you can look at saying, well, okay, how do I make life easier for the robot? What's, what's, the, what's the things I can do? And I think here that's where you can really start to use some of the stuff that the manufacturing industry my old industry cottoned onto quite quickly with robotics and that is basically you drive every single piece of variation out so every time a robot sees something it knows what it is it's seen it before it understands it it's in the place it expects it to be it's positioned how it expects it to be that second type of robotics with less autonomy has been used successfully on earth after the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, 60 robots, being controlled by humans, were sent in to clean up the nuclear waste. While lots of work is being done to improve robotic autonomy, Jeremy believes that in-space control of robots' actions and decisions may never be autonomous. We may always have that. We may not ever be able to fully predict everything, and we may not ever be able to get to a stage where a robot has true, what I would call true AI, where it's really autonomous. And also extent where the robot can look at something and go, I completely understand how this big jumble of parts have got to go together, even though I've never seen these parts before, and I've never seen the finished components. Some technologies may still have a way to go, but the Satellite Applications Catapult has been helping the few companies trying to get started in space manufacturing. 
Right now, there are very few in orbit manufacturing companies. The Catapult's engaged with many of the companies who are, are proposing to do things, and some of them who are actually starting on the uh, verge of actually doing something. In the UK, we probably have two companies who are worth, worth mentioning. One of them is Spaceforge, and they are a company who are planning to manufacture a variety of components in space and then return them to Earth. We've been working quite closely with them in terms of helping them develop their business activities, looking at the technologies they might use, the re-entry process and bringing things back to earth. The other companies, Varda Industries, they are a US company, but they're looking to do more both in the UK and in space. And the satellite applications catapult helps these companies with things like business advice and marketing, but also access to their world-class Westcut innovation facility. Right now, the catapult is focusing on driving a lot of nascent activities to get in-orbit manufacturing working. And most of these perhaps aren't as exciting as they might sound. So a lot of this is about building business cases, about bringing the right stakeholders together, creating the right partnerships. Some of the more exciting activities though clearly are looking at how we conduct in-orbit servicing and manufacturing. So some of the facilities we're building right now are Westcott campus using large-scale robotics to provide interaction of different objects between each other, spacecraft for the most part, but also how we might look at manufacturing processes in space and how we can work with UK, European and international companies to develop and accelerate those capabilities. Also at the Westcott facility is one of the world's largest 3D printers. This is called a Metal Fab One. It has a build volume, so this is effectively the chamber where you can build a part, which is 450 millimeters in X, Y, and Z. So you can build something which is round about two thirds the size of an average washing machine. That's pretty big from a 3D printing perspective. And the reality is, is we can use that capability to build everything from complex parts for spacecraft right across to rocket engines. And actually one of the nice things I like about this um, system is it's exactly the same machine that SpaceX used to build their Raptor, Super Draco, and Merlin engines. We have one, they have uh, significantly more than one, and you need that if you're gonna build a lot of rocket engines. But the reality is, is we have exactly the same technology, which can build exactly the same rocket engines as any of the other leading companies in the world who are building rocket engines. And that's what we've got companies doing right now at Westcott. We've got them using our metal 3D printing capabilities to build rocket engines, which they're testing there, and they're using the advantage of the metal 3D printer to build parts they simply couldn't manufacture using any other process. Manufacturing products on a large scale in space seems like a distant sci-fi or a fantasy. But Mike and Jeremy are confident that the start of a commercial in-space economy isn't that far away. All of these organisations have a very long way to go before they are actually demonstrating real success. But I suspect probably within five to six years we will start to see uh, effectively some nascent products enter the Earth economic markets in terms of products which have been made in space or being made in space to use in space. It's coming fast. There's lots of work going on on the robot side. There's examples of robots assembling things that have been to the or have been tested in the ISS or going through mission testing on Earth. Yeah, I'd say within the decade, we'd see stuff being manufactured with robots and being brought back. And further into the future, we could see this industry change the entire global economy with technology that is quite literally out of this world. If I were to look forward and say in 50 years, then I think it gets really exciting. And at that point, I think we are talking about a commercial space industry which probably spans at least the Earth, probably the Moon, 
and possibly at least one other planet. Everyone says probably Mars. It probably is Mars, but it might be somewhere else. And I'm almost certain the asteroid belt will be coming into play as well. And what we'll be seeing is a whole variety of different technologies, because we won't just be seeing technologies which are being manufactured in space to use in space. We'll be seeing technologies manufactured in space to use on Earth, but also those technologies to use on the Moon and possibly on Mars as well. And we're going to be seeing new economies effectively and new sectors developing. So when we talk pharmaceutics, I suspect in 50 years time, we may not well be talking, if someone says, I work in the pharmaceutical industry, you might ask them, which pharmaceutical industry? The pharmaceutical industry on, on Earth or the pharmaceutical industry on the moon? Because that's really what's going to happen. Space is going to become the global economy. It's going to have subsectors within it, which will be pharmaceutics and aerospace, textiles, food production, energy production, and many more. This is really going to change how humanity basically operates within the inner planets, and it will ultimately dictate where we go after that. 50 years is exciting. 100 years? My estimate is we're probably going to be leaving the solar system. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Johnny Dowling, hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Jane Sophia. Editing was by Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own robotic arm is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, the Satellite Applications Catapult. And thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media.